And we are in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And this is Paul sort of blowing our minds on how he is rejoicing through injustice. And so we're going to take a moment just to look at that topic before we get into verse 12. But the questions are answered. You know, how do you see injustice towards yourself or another innocent person? It's a hard thing when you see somebody getting railroaded, right? Uh, especially in the justice system. You know, the, these prosecutors, they can often just get stuff out of thin air and make you look guilty. Oh, well, the person here is a human, and we know the murderer was a human. Secondly, they breathe air, and this man breathes air. And they start stringing these things together, and, and, and you're just like, you got to be kidding. I, I'm not guilty. And then 20 years after being in prison, it found out, oh, yeah, he was totally innocent. But it's hard when somebody you know and love is, is injustice is upon them, and they're in the grinding of the machine. And no matter how loud you scream, you can't stop this force from happening. How do you view this as a believer? How do you reconcile injustice in our minds? How should the godly deal with ongoing injustice towards ourselves and others? I think we, we see this today politically, don't we? And uh, those who are constitutionalists uh, are, are saying, no, this, our forefathers knew what they were doing when they put these amendments in there. And they knew that a day like today might come and that we need to be prepared to fight for what they fought for again a second time. And, uh, but yet you're in the, the gears of that political machine running. You know, what do you do and what do you not do as a believer? This is a very relevant topic for our day. So let's look at these verses, and then I want to talk a little bit before we start dissecting verses 12 through 18. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and strife, and some out of goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So Paul was experiencing this unjust, this injustice coming against him and against the gospel. And, and the people that were speaking against him and the gospel of grace were using the fact that he was in prison as proof that he was wrong. Because here we are, that disagree with Paul's message of grace, and we're doing well. We're wealthy, and, and, and we're traveling and speaking in all the churches, and, and uh, we're popular, and people are buying our books. And, 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 and Paul, God shut him up 
That's why he's in prison. So that horrible gospel of grace would be shut up. And so the fact that Paul's in prison and we're not is a sign that we are right and he is wrong. And of course, Paul being stuck in prison has limited resources. He can't travel. He can't confront these accusers face to face. Remember in Acts 15, when those group of believing Pharisees now that got saved were going through telling the Gentile churches they still had to need to follow the law and get circumcised and all these things. And Paul said no, and he grabbed them by the ears and they went back and got with Peter and, and the other apostles that were there. And they had this council there in Acts 15 and, and they all agreed that the Gentiles should not go to try to keep the law, definitely not get circumcised. But Paul wasn't able to do that this time. He's at a great disadvantage. He can't defend himself. And there's a false narrative going on that's gaining steam and hurting him and hurting the gospel for the Gentiles that God gave to him directly. Let's, let's not forget that Jesus told us that these kind of days would come. Okay, this wasn't something that's surprising. Wow, out of the history of mankind, what Paul's experiencing is unique. It's not unique. A matter of fact, almost everybody in their lifetime will experience injustice. Where maybe you're, somebody's told the boss that you stole something or lied or... Something you absolutely did not do, you're innocent of, but then you get fired or you don't get that promotion. And, and all of a sudden, you're, you're there. The more you defend yourself, the more you look guilty. Have you ever been in that situation? The fact that you're so adamant that you're innocent tells me that you are guilty. It's, it's a weird dichotomy. You keep silent, you look guilty. You speak, you look guilty. And, and there are people that know that. They, they, if you just throw mud into the fan, mud's going to get slung, and, and, and the innocent person will have mud on them as well. And, and people think, if there's smoke, there's fire. I think of Judge Kavanaugh and them saying, you know, well, in his, when he was 14 years old, in his yearbook, he wrote these, this little phrase. That means he's a gang rapist, you know? I guarantee you there is a group of people, probably a large percentage of people, that believe he's guilty of that. There's absolutely no truth. There's no facts. There's nothing on that other than him being accused of that. But yet there's people to this day that will still believe that he did something like that. That's the way it works, injustice. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, that great Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you, oh, how happy are you when they revile you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is the reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets before you. Wow. Jesus is saying, just rejoice. This is a, a club that... It seems like all believers end up having to join sooner or later. In John 16, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that they offer God service. Wow, don't be stumbled by this. There, there is a time coming, and when that time comes, it will be that way 
And it's a part of the human experience when you are standing for Jesus. In John 16, these things I spoke to you that you would have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulations, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Why does Jesus overcoming the world matter? Because he's in us. We are in him in a perfect unity. He tells us in John 17, the very next chapter. So if Christ overcome the world, what? We're overcoming the world. If we're being persecuted, guess who else is being persecuted? Christ. Isn't that what he said to the apostle Paul when he, when he was Saul at that time going to persecute the church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians? Is that what the Lord said? He said, why are you persecuting me? Because he's in them and they in him in a perfect unity. And in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So there is a spiritual distinction that cannot be seen by the natural mind. But yet that natural mind hates you, is irritated by you, can't stand your face, can't stand your walk, can't stand you in any way, shape, or form. You just irritate them. And they genuinely hate you because they think there's something wrong with you. Man, I can tell you stories. I, I, I can remember working one job where a guy one day just lost it. And he's like, everybody around here hates you being so joyful and happy all the time. Do you know how irritating that is? And we know you're being phony. We know you don't show up here Monday morning all, oh, I'm a happy, oh, good to see everybody. You know, that's just a bunch of junk, you know. There's no way that's true. You're just a phony and a hypocrite. And, and just like... Okay, you know, what do you do with that? But yet, they were so deeply irritated. And the Apostle Paul hated Christians. He hated Stephen, who was a Jew in Jerusalem, no longer hanging with the Jewish doctrine, but preaching this Christianity. They wanted them dead. And so again, he, he just says, guys, it's spiritual. And so if you want the world to love you as a Christian, it's not going to happen. You've got to be prepared to let your self-esteem come from God's satisfaction with you and your fellow Christians having satisfaction with you. But if you want all to love you and all to praise you, something is wrong. And it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, I think it's in all our nature. We want to make everybody happy. We want to please, we want to be pleasing to every single person. But yet we're in a spiritual world where there's light and darkness. And the darkness hates the evil because the light shines and they don't like the light shining. Shut that light off. Oh man, that light hurts my eyes. That light 
makes me angry. That light makes me see my evil. It makes me see my lack. Keep the light off. And I hate when you come around because the light's off. When you come and you are the light of the world. It's your nature. You can't turn it on or turn it off. You are the salt of the earth. Right? If a person has wounds, salt hurts. Have you ever had a scratch on your leg or something you didn't know you had and you go jump in the ocean and it's like, ah, you know, and then you realize that salt's getting in there. It hurts, it stings, but it's also healing, right? Well, Jesus gave us this example to follow. For this you were called because Christ is an example that you should follow his steps. Understand, we are to follow all of us the steps of Christ, especially when he was heading to the cross, especially when he was on the cross. And this is where Jesus said repeatedly when nobody understood what he was saying, you must deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me. He was saying that early on to the apostles and those listening to him teach. And they're like, does anybody know? Does anybody have any idea what's going on here? Am I cutting in and out? Yeah, it seems like, seems like I'm cutting in and out. Okay. And um, so <clears throat> we know exactly what that means. And here Peter explains it to us. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself wore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, who by stripes you were healed. For you were all like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So you simply ask the question, how does salvation come to us? And in essence, it was injustice upon Jesus. If there was not injustice in the world, an innocent man being found guilty when he was really innocent, we never would have been saved. Isn't that crazy? When you really think about it, as horrible as injustice is, we would never be saved if injustice didn't exist. Because in essence, Jesus is the ultimate example of being put to death a death penalty when he was 100% innocent. A matter of fact, you'll never find this proportion ever again because Jesus had zero sin. You know, when, when often thieves get caught, sometimes they get caught for a robbery they didn't do. But there were 10 robberies in front of them that last week they didn't get caught for, right? I mean, you're... you're you, you finally get a ticket for speeding and you're like, hey, this is the one time I wasn't speeding, but there was literally a, a thousand times you should have got a ticket, right? You're not really completely innocent because you do speed. Everybody does that. We shouldn't, but we do. So getting a ticket this time for not when I was innocent, <clears throat> it really isn't an injustice because there's really a thousand times you should have got a ticket and didn't, but not with Christ. With Christ, it's like, well, he was guilty of a hundred other things anyway. No, he wasn't. 
but by his injustice we have eternal life. So look at him, completely innocent. He said not a word. Suffering. We're talking the whipping, the nails, this crown of thorns, incredible pain, dying on a cross. He did not say one ugly word. He just committed it to the Father. Father, you see this injustice? Men think I am guilty, but God, Father, you know I am your innocent lamb. Behold the lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who takes away the sin of the world. So really, this question is the number one question most asked. Did you know that? Why does God allow evil in the world? There's a number of questions how to ask that. Why does God allow evil? Or why does God allow suffering? Or why do evil things happen to good people? By the way, just as a note, I have an entire teaching on this out of the book of Genesis as a topical from years past, if you want to hear it. The title of the message, you can look to Genesis, is number one most asked questions. So it's, you know, uh, the bombing of innocent people, even children or infants die in that bombing. How can God allow that? People suffering extreme pain, like of cancer, or to see a six-year-old child dying of cancer and suffering for two years in the, the bed. Churches getting burnt down. Innocent babies suffer and die. The list can go on and on and on. The basic idea of this, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why doesn't he stop all evil or injustice in the world? The argument goes like this. God is either all-powerful, but not all-loving, and won't stop it. Or God is all-loving, but he's not all-powerful, and he can't stop it. But the God of the Bible can't be all-powerful and all-loving because it's the evil's continuing on. So therefore, this can't exist. The God of the Bible can't exist. That's the argument. But the Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible does tell us God's all-powerful and all-loving, and he eventually is going to stop it. But Jeremiah, boy, the whole chapter 12 of Jeremiah, he is wrestling with this in a deep way. He, he starts out there in chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgment. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And, those are, and why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And he goes on, and that's the chapter where God says, hey, buddy. If you can't keep up with the footman, how are you going to run with the horses? That's that chapter. But he's struggling, going, man, there's so much injustice. Evil are getting prosperous and rich. The righteous are suffering for being righteous. And you're allowing this to happen. The psalmist in Psalm 73, the same thing. I'm not going to read all of that, but he says, I almost slipped. I, I almost walked away from God 
because of the prosperity of the wicked and, and them doing so well and, and, and seeing them do evil against the poor, the widow, the orphan, stepping on people, oppressing people, and their oppression makes them richer and richer, and they have such a happy, joyful life and so many friends. And, and he said, it was so painful for me that I almost walked away from God, but then he went into the temple of God and he realized life is eternal. The life is so short on earth, God doesn't have to make the righteous blessed in this life on earth because they're going to be blessed for eternity with God. And the wicked in the same way, the full loop doesn't have to happen where the wicked get punished for their wickedness in this life because there's all eternity of hell to make that a possibility. As a matter of fact, when you read the end of the book of Revelation, we know how the end of the book ends. God has a wonderful passage on heaven, and then he has a couple of passages on hell. And he makes it very clear at the end of the Bible that all injustices will be set right. And it won't be done in this life only. Because see, that's, that's the problem. Often when somebody does get actually put to death for a murder they did, and then you say to the family, did that satisfy you? No. <laughs> I, I, I wanted them to die over a 20-year period, like, you know, to get needles stuck into them, you know, parts of their body until their whole body was stuck in needles with 20 years and burn them with flames and, and you know, poke their eyes out, you know, and you can't make them suffer enough in this life to, 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 to bring justice about, to feel satisfied for the death uh, that they caused. Isn't that true? God knows that. That's why he's saying, I can do that. I can bring about a true punishment that will be eternal. And that is the proper judgment for them, for what they've done. Of course, all of us deserve such a, a wicked death. So God is a God of justice, and he will do it all in his time. Because he doesn't do it yesterday or he doesn't do it today doesn't mean he's not going to do it. In Psalms 103, verse 6, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Ecclesiastes 3, 11, he'll make all things beautiful in its time. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, and a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. David cries out this very, this very topic, hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord, revive me according to your justice. The fact that God He's just like Jesus there in, in, in Peter where we saw that he, he did not yell at people or get angry at somebody. He just committed it into the Father's hands. David is like saying there's so much injustice. It's, it's making me so deeply angry and bitter. And as a king, he could do something about it. But there's just that point where you can't because everybody would be dead, Right? If you made everything, every injustice, you punished it where it needs to be punished, everybody in the kingdom would be dead, including himself, especially himself. 
He's just like, I commit, it, I commit the justice into your hands. It's too big of a weight for me to handle. In Hebrews 10, 13, it says that Jesus the Son is waiting on the Father until all his enemies are put under his footstool. And we know this is the tribulation period, and then the Lord's coming at the end of the tribulation period. Well, Jesus was asked this very question in Luke 13, where um, they said, hey, let's ask you a question. You, there's some Galileans, why they were worshiping God there uh, in the temple, and, and Pilate came down with his Roman soldiers, and he killed them while they were worshiping. What do you think? These Galileans, were they extra wicked people? We didn't think they were, but there must have been something in the dark darkness that they were hiding. We didn't realize how wicked they really were that God did this. And he said, hey, these guys weren't specially wicked. We all will perish in the same way. We all deserve such a, a death. And then they said, well, what about the 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 that wall that fell on people, the tower, just innocent women and children and people walking by, and the tower gave way, some bricks, and, and that fell on people, and they were all killed right below. Why did such an injustice happen to such innocent little children and so forth? And Jesus says, I tell you, we all are going to perish if we don't repent of our sins. So, it's, it's a great passage in Hebrews 11. That people often miss this. In Hebrews 11.34, you know, it talks about by faith how, you know, you, we love the story of Daniel and the lion's den and how God saved him and all of those kind of things. And, and he said, so by faith they quenched the fires, they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, valiant in battle, turned flight the armies of the aliens. These great heroes of the faith, we love when God does that. But then just a couple of verses later, we go from verse 34 to verse 37, and he changes his tune completely. They by faith were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, you know, they were put in the fires. They were slain with the sword. Do you see that? In verse 34, it says, by faith they escaped the edge of the sword. But now in verse 37, it says, by faith they were slain with the sword. They wander about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. On verse 38, it goes on, whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in the deserts, in the mountains, in the dens, and caves of the earth. So, let the truth of these next few words deepen our hearts as we come to have joy in the midst of whatever trials or difficulties or injustice we have. So what does faith look like? It can look like you're being saved from the sword. Daniel in the lion's den. Or it could also look like you get ate by the lion. <laughs> you, the fire... Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not burn them, but yet the fire does burn you, and you burn to death in a horrible fire. Or you're killed with the sword rather than escaping the edge of the sword. So God is, does not feel like he has to make things right in our time of our life on earth. For some people, God does make a full circle. The the. The robber gets caught, gets tried, is found guilty, and spends his time.
I'm in jail. And we say, wow, it happened. But then there's times where, you know, those guys on Wall Street, <laughs> still millions, unjustly. We, we see that with the Congress right now. They all got wealthy during this pandemic. Nancy Pelosi went from being worth $100 million to almost being worth $400 million in the last two and a half years. And she says it's perfectly fair. <laughs> well, again, we just laugh because she can't spend $400 million. She's going to die in just a few years. So it doesn't really matter if she's worth $10 million or $400 million. It's not going to change anything of her life. But she's going to stand before God for these things. And so we don't have to get wrapped up and angry. We know it's in God's hands. So looking again at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So remember when Paul was first saved, God said, you're going to go and preach the gospel to Jews, but to Gentiles, and all the way to Rome and to those in authority, even to the kings and to the emperor. But I'm going to sh the main thing is I'm going to show you how much a Christian can suffer on earth for my name's sake. That was the message. And so he now is having to come back to remember that. It's a very hard thing. He's been in prison for years. It's been incredibly difficult. And now he, he is saying that, hey, you know what I'm observing? I'm observing God doing a ministry and reaching people that never could have been reached any other way. We know that Paul's most important ministry, that Paul probably died not even know he did it, right? And that was writing half of the New Testament. Do you think Paul realized, oh, I just wrote the Bible? I think he died having no idea that he wrote. Them. He wrote some letters to some dear friends, but I don't think he thought he wrote the Bible. But yet he did. In this time, he wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Do you guys remember what happened? He went to Jerusalem. He got arrested there in Acts 21. He was there in Jerusalem. They were going to kill him, and he, he, they sent him down to Caesarea. He was there for a couple of years, preached to all these highfalutin kings and governors and everything. And then um, it was clear that this wasn't going to work out, so he appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar he would go. And there one night, the Lord stood by him in Acts 23, verse 11, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. So it seems like Paul did not rejoice in his imprisonment at the beginning. It was wearing on him. And Paul told us in Galatians, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Or the, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. We know the joy of the Lord is our strength. But here he says, hey, Quit being grumpy and, and upset and angry and injustice and, and stewing and bitterness is starting to grow. Stop that. Rejoice. Because I'm getting you a ticket right to Rome, free of charge. 
And of course, eventually Paul did make it to Rome and did do that. And to many of this, this would seem as if Paul's life as a missionary was over. But Paul didn't see it that way. He said, this is all God's plan. I see it now. When he told me to rejoice, this is a Paul part of my plan. I'm with you, Paul. I didn't forget about you. I'm not weak. I didn't go golfing and forget about you. Going, you know, I'm in the middle of the 18th hole going, Paul, I forgot about Paul. You know, that didn't happen. It's all part of the plan. Well, verse 13, so that it was evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. This palace, it's referring to these, the headquarters of the, the Roman camp. The palace guard, the praetorium guard, the palace guard, it's referring to the elite soldiers that were put together by Tiberius to guard the emperor himself. So we would say the secret service today. But these were the top, top soldiers that were like noblemen in Rome. They were the elite people in Rome. And they were chained to Paul for a 24-hour period sometimes. So Paul was under house arrest, but at the same time, he had to have guards at all times. And they observed Paul in all kinds of situations. Later in this book, in Philippians 4.22, Paul's going to say, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. <laughs> Isn't this radical? That there's this full-on revival going on right in Caesar's palace. All these people getting saved. I, I, I asked a pastor years back. He's since passed away. And he had pastored the Calvary at that time. There was just one in Las Vegas. And I'm like, how do you pastor in Las Vegas? He goes, let me tell you, everybody works for the casinos. Even if you're a contractor or a plumber or you, you, know, have, you put Cokes in a vending machine. Eventually, everybody works for the casino. So I say nothing about gambling ever. <laughs> but he said, I've seen it where a person will come to church, sometimes maybe like a maid, and she's like on the 13th floor of this giant casino. I guess not 13th floor, 11th floor <laughs> of this casino. And a revival will break out, and every one of them get radically saved, the entire floor. And I'm up, you know, doing a Bible study there, and they're all coming to church, and, and he goes, or I'll see a casino, you know, on the first floor, and all of the people just get radically born again. It's, it goes, it's the most exciting thing to see in the midst of it. And so I, I thought of that. It's like, well, we don't need to talk about Paul being unjustly, unjustly in prison. We don't need to talk about whether Rome is a, a noble government or a wicked government. We, we don't need, it's just the fact is that people are hearing the gospel and getting saved in the very midst of wickedness, in the very midst of evil. And right in the middle, there's this explosion of salvation going on. Verse 14, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So many of the brethren that were afraid, going, hey, me sharing the gospel, I could lose my job, or uh, worse, I could get put in jail, or I could get tortured to death. 
And, and, and this is a very real possibility in Rome at this time. But yet, when they observe Paul being in prison and the joy he has and, and the fact that in these circumstances he's sharing the gospel in incredible ways, that, that Paul being in prison was actually a fruitful time even though he was in prison. Notice the four things. Most of the brethren, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Interesting. What happens and why people people share their faith? Because they're afraid. But their fear went away. Because when they saw Paul preaching the gospel, why in prison? And prison guards right there, probably grumbling and complaining and, and whatever, they, they realized proportionally, what can man do to me? They can reject me. They can spit on me. They can throw rocks at me. They can beat me. They can put me in prison. What, what, it, it doesn't matter what happens to me because God is in control and my life is in his hands. Do you believe that, that the sands of your life are in God's hands? You know, my son, Tracy, died at 21. And looking back on it and how he lived his life, I realized, wow, he, he really did understand his life was only going to be 21 years on this earth. And, and me and my wife were fine with that. Cheryl and I, we were like, okay, God, yeah. Sometimes a flower will last a couple of minutes and get mowed down. Some flowers last a week. Some butterflies are made just to last a very short time. Their entire lifespan is but a few days. And so with man, man can live a day. Man could live 100 years. We're going to be in Genesis this week. A lot of them lived almost to 1,000 years before the flood. I'd say no thank you to that. But <laughs> um, not on this earth, this way. But um, the fact is, is that God's life's in our hands, isn't it? Are you okay with that? You should be. And so Paul is saying that everybody that was stifled in Rome from preaching the gospel, I'm a Christian, but don't tell anybody, it changed. Paul being in prison, it changed everything. In Philippians 1.15, some indeed preached Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. Wow, this is a mind-boggling thing. That people are out preaching the gospel of Christ at the same time their heart is so wrong. It's full of envy and full of strife. That the main motive of their heart was self-will, was competition. It, it wasn't about people getting saved. It was about their ministry growing, getting more supporters to support my ministry, getting a bigger building so I look prosperous as a pastor. Their motive was just so human, but so sinful. But others, not everybody, there's others out of, of goodwill. Paul warned about this in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they who measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves amongst themselves, that's not wise. 
But he also identifies there's many doing it of the good spirit, of a good will. Now, the former, those who are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife, the former, they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Isn't that crazy? Having ambition in and of itself is not wrong. It's a good thing. To want to be the top in your class, you know, get the best grades or or want to be promoted at work, that's a good ambition to be the best at something. But a selfish ambition is now is where you're willing to hurt other people, step on other people, be manipulative or even a liar, whatever it takes to get to the top. And Paul is saying these guys are actually out preaching the gospel, not because they want people to get saved, because they're doing little digs against Paul. They're making sure that not only Jesus Christ saved them, but you don't follow the gospel of grace that Paul preaches. We're not of that group. We're of Apollos. We're of Cephas. We're of whatever. And, and he, this is the, the, really the main purpose. Paul had this revelation, this discernment, that their hearts were so wrong. It's interesting here. That which was damaging the church at this moment was not heretical teaching. We often think the thing that will destroy the church the most is heretical teaching. Nope. These guys' doctrine is right on. What was undermining was their competitive spirit against Paul. Was that human spirit of competitiveness and to get ahead. I wonder if some of these guys were ex-Pharisees. Remember, they wanted the chief seats. They wanted everybody to notice them. They wanted to be, you know, in, in the special spot where everybody knew they were somebody great. But they, everybody saw Paul as the top guy and they didn't like it. He wasn't Jewish enough or he wasn't, he was... Too, too much ministering to the Gentiles and off to the Jews. I don't know what was going on. But their main motivation was eventually to not just promote themselves, but to make sure Paul lost. They didn't want to just win. They wanted Paul to seriously lose. That was the spirit of it. In verse 17, But the latter out of love, knowing that it, I was appointed to the defense of the gospel... Wow, love is the best motive, isn't it? That we'd always be compelled by love. Without love, we're a clinging symbol, a blasting trumpet. And then finally in verse 18 today, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He, he makes it emphatic, doesn't he? So what is Paul saying? These guys that are preaching the true doctrine with an absolute wicked heart and motives of why they're doing it, I don't care. I don't care what, what, what's going on with them. That's, that's God's issue, right? God has not told me to be God. God has not told me to be the Holy Spirit. God has not asked me to be the prosecuting attorney. I mean, there is a point where people's motives and hearts 
are wrong. And you know it. And, and you just have to let the father, dad, deal with that other child, right? And just say, you know what? I just committed to the father, but they're teaching the true doctrine. And this I rejoice that the gospel is preached. I don't know. That's just mind boggling to me. God's getting the work done through vessels that are very, very imperfect. Who would have known? In my own case, I know God only used a perfect vessel, me, right? God uses imperfect vessels. Well, how imperfect? Really, really imperfect. God uses in vessels that maybe go through a season of their life and they are just, it's almost wicked what's going on in their heart with their envy and strife and selfish ambition. And, and their motive is so wrong, but yet their ministry keeps prospering. Anybody ever see something like that? I think we've all seen that, right? Either through seasons. Man, I could tell you some funny stories. I could tell you some funny stories of trying to keep up with the Joneses or outdo your brother in ministry. I've seen some funny things. But Paul is saying, even when vessels are imperfect or even they are being so ornery, they need to be spanked. And if God would give me permission, I'd spank them. Dad, let me spank them. But I can't. But I rejoice. They're, they're preaching the sound, true doctrine even though their hearts are so wrong, Christ is preached. Do we realize the simplicity of this? In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the what? Simplicity that's in Christ. These guys that were so off, all they had to do is say clearly, it's through Christ, our Messiah, that our sins are forgiven and we're saved. Now, there's all kinds of other stuff around that. They're complicating things all around that, but they got that part right. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I, I have ministered to groups of people that came out of cults. And there was a group of Jehovah Witnesses that came out, and they were tweaked. And I had a, a guy come in, and he had written a book, Peter Barnes, and discipled them for a couple of years. And most of them didn't make it. They were just so weirded out. But the ones that did make it, some of them said, you know what? Even through all of the Jehovah Witness stuff, man, I believed in Jesus, and, and I, I loved him. Even in the midst of all their heresy, I purely, simply trusted Christ to forgive my sins. I, I was saved. I've seen that with Catholicism. In the midst, you know, I, I've been around the, the world where Catholicism is thick. Mariology is thick. But yet people have still trusted in Christ in the midst of all that idolatry and religiosity and, and weirdness. The Greek Orthodox Church, the same thing. So 
it's so wonderful that people coming to Christ to be saved is so simple. All this other garbage is going on in their hearts and their minds. Other stuff is happening around it, but yet they come to that point, Christ and him crucified. Jesus died, paid for our sins and rose again. Believe upon him and you'll be saved. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was it. I came to tell you just a couple of things. Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. He was buried and on the third day, he rose again from the dead, according to the gospel. That was it. And sure enough. So in this, I rejoice, and I will rejoice. He's very pronounced about this. That people are hearing the truth. That Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the Messiah. He paid for our sins. And by believing in him, you can be born again. So really, you know, the main thing I get out of this The real rejoicing point, the main point, is that the gospel was preached and people that never would have shared the gospel in any other time of their season of their life started preaching the gospel. Many of the brethren who never would have. Do you, do you know, you can look at the stats and Google it, everything today, but it's in the 90 percentile of Christians have never once, even though they've been Christians 50 years, have never once tried to share the gospel with a stranger. They've never done it. Most people haven't even done it to their family or their friends. Why? Because we get into our own mind, don't we? We get so weirded out and nervous. And there's a spiritual world. The demons are oppressing you. Shut your mouth. You're going to be a weirdo. They're going to think you're a Jesus freak. The, the, the whole family will not want anything to do with you anymore. They'll, they'll, you'll be in exile at work. <laughs> you'll be over there at the table by yourself, just like in high school. And everybody else is over here. Don't share the gospel. Don't be an outsider. We get in our heads, and there's just like a thousand of these things. But <clears throat> the real conclusion of the matter is by me being stuck in prison, I can't do hardly anything. But yet, there's this revival going on with all the prison guards. There's this revival going into, into the house of Caesar himself. Who would have believed anyone who works for Caesar would ever become a Christian? Especially when you're going to get put to death for being a Christian. Who would have believed it? but yet they are, and, and their minds are being blown. So here, here's what I, I say the conclusion is, guys. Is You say, well, I, I, I would share the faith, but I'm just not a holy guy. I struggle with sin. I, you know, I, I would share the, the, the Lord more, but I just don't have enough knowledge. You know, I, I would share the Lord more if I felt more spiritual. I, I really am trying to get to a point where I feel more spiritual and then from this spiritual elevated place, I, I can share the gospel. Or the exact right timing. Man, I almost thought last Saturday when I hung out with my friends I, that was gonna be, but then, you know, we got busy and, and this happened and we started this concert. It just wasn't the right timing. 
that Paul, in essence, is saying, it's so small what has to be shared. It's so simple what needs to be believed that even if your heart was horrible, you really were a horrible sinner when you were sharing the gospel. You really were full of envy and strife and self-seeking. You were just doing it because you wanted to go to church and brag everybody that you shared the Lord with 10 people. Your, your motive was so bad. Your spirituality was so low. You even had a heart to hurt other Christians. That was really why you were preaching the gospel. Even if that was, I mean, I can't imagine things being worse. But if you were on the worst end of the scale and you still shared Jesus, the Lord rejoices. Really, it's the Lord rejoicing. Paul says, I rejoice, but it's really the Holy Spirit telling us that God rejoices. So think about that. Are you really over on the far spectrum like these guys were that were against Paul? I don't think you are. Maybe a notch this side or a notch that side or two notches or three notches. You weren't that far out. So the point is, is that God is rejoicing when we just tell people the Lord loves them. That he died and paid for their sins according to the scriptures. They was buried on the third day, rose again. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? Isn't that awesome? That's the, that's the message we come across with here. Well, Lord, as we deal with injustice in our own country right now, as we deal with injustice, Lord, right now, and, and the very much all over the world we're seeing it, when I'm eating a big meal here on this side of the planet and seeing people starve to death over in the Sudan, that's really unjust, and I'm a part of that injustice. It just breaks my heart, Lord. This world is so full of pain and sorrow and emptiness and hurt, Lord. Help us, God. Help us to get our eyes on you and keep our eyes on you in the midst of so many weird things. It's hard to imagine all these weirdos <laughs> preaching the gospel, being pastors of churches, being evangelists and apostles, hoping to, to devastate Paul and make his life harder while he's in prison, break his heart over churches and doctrines and just to try to mess with him. How weird this world is. But Lord, our eyes are upon you. No matter how weird things get, no matter how difficult things get, our eyes are upon you. If you're here today or you're listening online right now or maybe in the future and you need to have Jesus come into your life just right now, Jesus, I believe you are the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, that you took my sin upon you even though you were an innocent lamb of God. You had no sin of your own. You took all my sin upon yourself and you paid the penalty of my sin. You were punished in my place, that I could freely now, by faith alone, go to heaven. I receive it. In Jesus' name, be my Lord. Forgive my sin. I give my life to you, Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Lord, strengthen all those today who have heard the word to follow you and to be bold in their witness like never before. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.